Under the Rocks. Jason Riddle stood at the window for a very long time, staring out at the Rappahannock as it flowed in the night. The window reflected the scene behind him perfectly, three men holding drinks, watching him, waiting for him to turn around. One relaxed on an expensive couch, his arms spread out over the cushions. Another leaned in the doorway, and the third crossed his legs on the love seat. Riddle fingered the lip of his cup. He cocked his head and held completely still for a moment. One of the men coughed politely, and Riddle shushed him and leaned closer to the glass. After several minutes, his shoulders relaxed. Finally, he turned around. Dan, he said, addressing the man standing in the door. His voice had a nasal twang to it, not quite as gruff as northern voices, but not the smooth purr of the Georgian gentleman either. It's close to nine, isn't it? The man in the doorway, the Dan in question, Dan Gallup, that is, Fredericksburg native, contractor, hunter, former punk rocker, nodded and disappeared into the other room without a word. He was laconic by nature, prone to doing more than saying, as evinced by that curt nod and swift departure. His footsteps receded up a staircase, then thumped around overhead. The man on the couch was Cole Porter, a biology professor at UMW. His parents were, of course, fans of the late crooner, something he'd had to live with his entire life. He asked his colleagues to call him by his middle name, David, and they, of course, complied. For a while, when he first started teaching, one of his students would invariably discover his first name and some kind of juvenile wonderment would ensue. But as the years progressed and popular taste skewed elsewhere, that sort of activity slowed and then ceased altogether. Every now and then a savvy student might express surprise at his name, but his or her classmates didn't understand the illusion or were too busy steeped in the self-aggrandizing navel-gazing of social networking to care. So what are you saying, Mr. Riddle? Porter asked. That somebody murdered these people? Well, not somebody, but something. Porter rolled his eyes. Now, 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 Riddle said, patting the air with his hands. Let me tell you a story, gentlemen. If by the end of the tale you're not convinced, you can leave. Minus my fee, course. Agreed? Porter paused and then shrugged. Why not? I'm here. Dean? Dean Goodman was a reporter for the Freelance Star in the same way that Elton John was a linebacker for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was 23, fresh out of college, and, like many young men, hungry to prove himself in his new career. Unfortunately, he graduated right in the middle of the Great Recession, which meant that, despite his degree from Cornell, despite his glowing recommendations from his professors, despite his perfectly tweaked, endlessly groomed writing samples, the best job he could land was as a cub reporter covering local events in Fredericksburg, Virginia. He honestly had no idea what he was doing there, had merely responded to an invitation from Mr. Riddle out of curiosity. He supposed none of the real journalists at the paper would take the invite seriously, for why else would the kid tasked with covering important scoops as those interchangeable middle-aged guys playing grunge covers at one of the three dives around town in August cultural events like the June Craft Fair in Market Square be summoned? Sure. Go ahead. Very good, Riddle said. He sat down in one of the cushy chairs next to the fireplace and sighed. He took a sip of his drink. The ice clinked against the glass. It started for me almost 70 years ago, in the summer of 1933. I'm the youngest of three sons. My older brothers, Lee and Mitch, are, bless them, dead. 
Died a natural causes, mind, not because of the river. As boys growing up, we knew the Rappahannock like we knew our own bedrooms. Every summer, we spent lounging about on its banks, fishing and swimming, sometimes all day. Summer 33 was terrible hot and dry. We were in the middle of a long, disastrous drought, much like we are now. The river was at the lowest point I'd ever seen. There were sections up by Falmouth that had run dry, exposing rocks that hadn't seen direct sunlight in over a century. Even so, there are sections that will never run dry, and there are depths unknown to even the most experienced river rats. These are the ones that are the most populated during the summer. Well, right around midsummer, the drowning started. First, there was Lonnie Harris, a schoolmate of mine, drowned in the middle of the day, surrounded by six other boys in my class. I wasn't one of them, but I would have been had my mother not decided to take me out to visit my grandparents in Culpeper. Then there was Michelle Phipps, an older girl, friend of my brother Lee, drowned on the 4th of July. Back then, the fireworks show was held over the river, not like it is now, that load of concrete and asphalt out there on Route 3. Families would picnic out on the banks all day long, watch the display at night. Michelle's mother said one second she was sunning on diving rock, next she was gone. Then there were two more, a Stafford man, a high school English teacher out with his daughters, drowned in late July, and my cousin Amanda in mid-August. Now, my cousin Amanda was the sweetest thing in Fredericksburg. Even at nine years old, I knew that. She was 19, beautiful, smart as a whip. She and my brother Lee had always been close, but as I got older, her father, my Uncle Kenny, began to notice that they were too close. At the time, I didn't understand what all the fuss was about. But early that summer, there were some heated words between my father and Uncle Kenny, and then all of a sudden, a man and her family didn't come around my house no more. I guess Lee and Manda found some way to meet up, usually at night, usually at the river. In fact, that's where they were the night Amanda went missing. Of course, nobody could prove what they were doing or if Lee was even with her. In the summer, her camp park was often filled late into the night by people trying to escape the heat. All anybody knew was that a few old-timers hanging around the park said they'd seen Amanda heading that way around midnight, and the only evidence they had was a dress of hers slung up in some branches on the bank. And like the other victims that summer, nobody ever did find Amanda's body. Uncle Kenny and my father repaired their relationship following Amanda's disappearance. I guess they figured one family tragedy was enough to bear him one summer. We all went to her funeral. Lee tried not to look distraught, but the pain in his face showed. He didn't cry until they started lowering Amanda's empty casket into the ground, and Uncle Kenny came over and put his arm around him. Because of the heat that summer, my parents and I slept in the living room, Lee and Mitch in the basement. The night of the funeral got to be too hot for me even in the living room, so I went and made my bed on the screened-in front porch. Later on, I guess it had to be close to midnight, I was woken by the sound of a heated exchange. When I sat up and looked out, I saw Lee and Mitch on the front lawn on the little walk under the screen. Don't care what you think, Mitch, Lee said, his voice raising from a whisper to nearly a shout. I know what I saw and I'm going back there for it. You're crazy if you think I ain't going with you, Mitch said. I was foolish enough to stand up. Ain't going where? Oh, Lord, Jason, Lee moaned. What are you doing out here? It's too hot inside. Couldn't sleep. Where are you guys going? Why you got daddy's gun? Lee looked at the shotgun in his hand like he hadn't realized it was there. He tried to hide it behind his back. I ain't got time to explain. He looked at Mitch. I'm going. And he stalked off across the lawn. I've been around long enough to know when Mitch and Lee were up to something interesting. 
And I wasn't about to let this one slip by, not with Lee toting daddy's shotgun around and acting like he was crazy. I slipped on my old fishing shoes, which I always kept on the porch, opened the screen, and hopped down to the lawn. I wasn't wearing anything else but my tidy whities Lee, wait! I'm coming too! Lee stopped. No, you ain't. He walked up to me and knelt down to look me in the eye, put on that voice he used when Mama put him in charge of me and Mitch. Jason, you're staying right here till me and Mitch get back. It's for your own safety. Like hell I am. You step out this yard without me, I'll wake Daddy up tell him you got his gun. I'll holler so loud the whole neighborhood will hear. I'll start right now. I opened my mouth to scream and Lee clamped his hand over it. It was hot and sweaty. All right. Damn it. But you ain't going dressed like that. Go get some clothes on. Your fishing clothes. Hurry up. And don't wake up Mom and Dad. I hurried upstairs to my room and got dressed. When I came back out, I half expected Lee and Mitch to be gone, but there they were, waiting for me on the front lawn. Here, take this. Lee said. He handed me the old machete daddy used to cut the kudzu in the backyard. What for? Listen, if you're going to ask too many questions, don't bother coming along. I don't care if you do wake up in the neighborhood. With that, he turned and walked away. Daddy's rifle slung over his shoulder. What about me? Mitch asked. You're a big boy, Mitch. Get your own weapon. I waited for Mitch while he went and got an axe from the shed, and both of us took off after Lee. Lee was with a man and the night she disappeared. What you mean they was together? Like they was... Shut up, Jason. You don't know what you're talking about. Besides, she wasn't a blood cousin or nothing. Daddy and Uncle Kenny just fought in the war together. Well, this is news to me. I'd grown up believing Uncle Kenny was family. Anyway, Lee says a man who wasn't drowned. Says something got her. Something pulled her down and took her away, and there wasn't nothing he can do about it. What was it? I asked. He don't know, but he said he's going to find it and kill it. Fredericksburg was still and silent as we stole through her streets. We lived on Sunken Road back then. To get to the river, we had to cut past the old canal and head west up Princess Anne. Way off in the distance, I heard the clock on Presbyterian Church now. It was 15 till 1. Nobody was on Lee Jackson, so we struck off north toward the river, then crossed the fire and plunged down the hill and into the woods on the bank. Lee stayed at least 20 yards in front of us the whole way, his gait sure and fast. Mitch had to call out for him to wait up more than once, and Lee'd stop for a few minutes, pawing the ground with his shoes. When we got within 10 feet, he'd take off again. When we reached the woods, we lost him almost immediately. The sound of the river drowned out everything but the sticks cracking on our feet and the crickets on the bank. Mitch, it's got to be past one in the morning, I said. So? So we're going to get in trouble if we get found out. Jesus, Jason, we're already in trouble. You're the one made us take you. But Mama wakes up earlier and the sun rises. She's going to go looking for me, and if she don't see me, shh! Mitch stopped abruptly and crouched down in the bush, his head cocked like he was listening for something. I crouched down next to him. What is it? 
You heard daddy? I knew it. I knew he was going to find... Shut up, Mitch hissed. Both of you shut up, Lee spat. He was crouched down about five feet in front of us, daddy's rifle in his hand, spying at the river around a thick growth of bushes past the hanging branches of a river tree. The water shone black and silver in the full moon, and though it was lower than I'd ever seen, low enough to expose more on the top of diving rock, it was still strong and swift. All I heard was the rush of the current and the occasional fish splashing in the distance. Stay down, Lee whispered. Why? Mitch asked. You hear that big splash a minute ago? Yeah. That was it. The thing that got Amanda. Seen it jumping off diving rock. It was enough to make both me and Mitch mute with fear. Then suddenly that fear evaporated. Two summers before, when I was eight, Lee and Mitch took me out to the movies. Daddy let Lee drive his car, and afterwards we stopped at Carl's and got some ice cream. Lee drove out to the docks, and we ate our cones in the car watching the river. I got a piss, Mitch said, and got out to shake it off in the bushes. You ever hear of the hook and eye killer? Lee asked after a while. No, I said, concentrating on my cone. I hated it when the ice cream dribbled down on my hand, hated the stickiness, and so I was focused on looking the base clean. Don't surprise me, Lee said. Why? Well, your teacher's a Yankee. She wouldn't know about it. Lee was right. My third grade teacher, Mrs. Tucker, was from Chicago. She just moved down here with her husband, who was in the Marines. She was young and pretty, but she had the funniest accent I ever heard. Thing was, she said the same thing about us. What's that got to do with it? I asked. Never mind. I haven't told you all this, but while Lee could be less than skilled when it came to reading and writing in school, he had a grade A degree in child psychology, at least when it came to me. Come on, Lee. Suddenly the ice cream cone wasn't all that interesting anymore. Okay, okay. He finished his cone and chucked the paper napkin out the window. See, when I was your age, all the third grade teachers had to tell this story. It was like a, a public service announcement. About 20 years ago, a couple of kids were murdered. Right around here, as a matter of fact. Right near the docks. Really? Lee glanced up in the mirror. He knew he had me. Heads tore clean off. Hands, too. And their eyes was plucked out. Or so they thought. Nobody ever knew, because there were just holes where the eyes should have been. Oh, man, I said. That's right. Anyway, nobody thought nothing much of it till about three weeks later when two more kids was found murdered. Same thing this time. Heads tore off, no eyes. The rumor started up from the first one, but this time everybody knew it was the hook and eye killer. Who was it? Lee stifled a smile, but I was too young to see it. I thought he was trying not to get too upset. Nobody really knew who it was, but a few years before the same thing happened. Some people thought he was an escaped mental patient from up north. Some thought he was a hobo lived out in the woods. Didn't really matter, though. All that mattered was that he liked to kill kids, especially kids who hung out late at night in this neck of the woods. You mean around here? Yup. I licked my cone, letting this new information set in. Then why'd he take their heads off and poke out their eyes? Lee nodded. That's a good question, Jason. He said, see, the hook and eye killer was blind, lost both hands in the war. He knew he could never get his hands back, but for some reason he thought he could with his eyes. So he put hooks on his hands, sharpened up real good, and went around looking for victims. By this point, I was wound up tighter than a cat's ass. You could have bounced a nickel off my head and I wouldn't have noticed. 
Lee swung his head out the window and started tapping lightly on the roof. And the story goes that before he killed his victims, he'd drag his hook along something nearby. Something loud like the asphalt or a light pole or a car. Just then, something scraped along the side of Daddy's car, right on my side. I leapt out of my seat. Oh, Jesus, Lee! I cried. Start the car! Get out of here! I hit the deck, screaming. Lee screamed, too, and I heard the door open. Oh, God, Jason! Ah! God! Help me! Lee! 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 Then, suddenly, I heard laughter. Mitch's laughter and Lee's. I carefully sat up, poked my head over the headrest. There they were outside the car, holding on to each other, belly laughing. My cone was mashed up on the floor. Ice cream was smeared all over my face. You sons of bitches, I cried. I didn't know what it meant. I just heard Daddy cry it out whenever he was mad. I scrambled out of the car so fast and leapt on Mitch, started hitting him in the face. That wasn't funny, you sons of bitches. Lee tried to pull me off, but only managed to topple us over, and we ended up in a big pile on the ground, and then we were all laughing. And that's what I thought they were doing right now, playing a trick on me, just like they did before. Now I know both of you's full of it, I said. There ain't no river monster. You're just trying to scare me, that's all. Sons of bitches. Lee leapt for me and clasped his hand over my mouth. Damn it, Jason, shut up. We ain't trying to do nothing but kill the thing that killed Amanda. I don't want you down here in the first place. You can go on home if you want to take it seriously. I bit his hand and he held it there until he couldn't take it anymore. Then he pulled it away with a bitter curse. See, you're just keeping it up now. Listen, you idiot, Lee said. Really listen. You hear anything? I cocked my head and listened. No? That's because all the crickets stopped chirping. You ever hear the crickets stop chirping down here? He was right. It was dead silent. Nothing to be heard but the rush of the river. All of a sudden, I was very afraid. Lee was right. The crickets never stopped chirping by the river. Same thing happened right before that thing got Amanda, Lee said. Y'all ain't messing with me? Lee shook his head. This ain't no hook and eye killer. I must have looked about as pale as a ghost because Lee's attitude changed. He smiled. Listen, ain't nothing gonna happen to you if you do what I say. I got Daddy's rifle, you got a machete, and Mitch has got an axe. It's more than what it's got. What are you gonna do? I'm gonna wait out diving rock. That's where it likes to hunt. Then I'm gonna kill it. I'm going with you, Mitch said. No, you stay here with Jason. You're going to need another set of eyes. What if it comes at you from behind? Lee thought about it for a minute. Okay, but I'll go first. Jason, you sit tight here on the shore. Make sure ain't nothing coming at us from anywhere else. I started to protest, but Lee cut me off. We can't see everything from out there. You got to be another set of eyes. I couldn't argue because I knew he was right. Okay. Then Lee did something he rarely, if ever, did. He hugged me. Listen, you're going to be all right, okay? Anything comes after you, you just chop it up with the machete. Got it? I nodded meekly. All right, Lee said. Mitch, wait until I'm about halfway out, then come on in after me. Keep your eyes on the water around me. He patted me on the shoulder, took off his shoes and shorts, and waded into the river. When it got too deep to walk, he put the rifle over his head in one hand and started to paddle with the other. All right, Jason. Mitch said when Lee was halfway out. Then he waded into the river, too. I crouched at the bank and watched my brother swim out to dive and rot. Lee reached it, threw the rifle on top, and scrambled up after. Mitch was a strong swimmer, but the axe weighed him down. 
He struggled to keep a straight line in the current. Lee stood on the rock, staring down into the water. All of a sudden, he shouldered the rifle, aimed it toward Mitch, and fired. The report echoed up the river. Jesus, Lee! I heard Mitch shout. You almost shot me! Mitch, drop the axe and hurry up! Lee cried. He cocked the rifle and aimed it at the water near Mitch again. Hurry up! Mitch opened his mouth to speak, and then he was gone. One second, his head was there, bobbing above the water, perfectly visible in the full moonlight. Then he was gone. Something had dragged him under. Mitch! Lee cried. I stood up. Jason, get down! Lee yelled. What about Mitch? I called back. Tears streamed down my face. Get down! I obeyed immediately and crouched back down in the bushes, keeping my eyes where I could see the river. Lee fired into it again. A second later, something popped up out of the water where it lapped against a diving rock, gasping for air. It was Mitch. Get me out, he cried, extending his hand. Lee put the rifle in his left hand and grabbed Mitch's forearm with his right. As he pulled, I saw a huge black form shoot out of the water. It was aiming right for Lee. Lee fell back, still holding on to Mitch and shot from the hip. The form squealed and spun in midair, knocking the rifle out of Lee's hand. Then it crashed back down in the swift-moving current. Lee pulled Mitch up onto the rock and then dove back into the river. Jason, he yelled when he surfaced, don't move! Mitch dove in after Lee and began to swim toward the bank with strong, determined strokes. He overtook Lee and made it to where he could stand. I stood up out of the bushes. Get down, he yelled, but it was too late. The huge thing burst out of the water almost as soon as I stood up, roaring and snarling as it shot straight for me. And when it hit me, it felt as though I'd been knocked in the chest with a hammer. All the air left my body and I was overwhelmed by the stench of rotten fish. Claws ripped into my shoulder and neck and an unearthly roar rumbled out of the monster's deep lungs. I was on my back. Didn't even remember getting there. Both of my arms were out on either side, and I discovered with some amazement that I managed to hold on to the machete. The beast reared up to deliver what I was sure would be my death blow. Its arms, chest, and head were etched inky black against the white moon. I drew up all my strength and blindly swung the machete out in front of me. The monster's weight shifted. Its arms were falling, falling swiftly for me, for my head. And that was it. I was dead. My head be cut off only not by the hook and eye killer, but by some ugly, disgusting thing. Some horrible beast from my worst, most terrible nightmare. Then I felt the blade connect with something hard. Wetness splattered my face, my torso. A horrible squeal filled the air. Then the weight was off my body, and I heard a huge splash. I opened my eyes. Mitch was standing over me. Jason! Oh my God! I tried to sit up, but the pain in my neck was too much. The corners of my eyes went black. He's bleeding all over the place, Mitch said. We've got to get him home, Lee. Did I get it? I asked weakly. Lee came quietly up behind us and squatted down next to me. He had something in his hand. You got him, Jason. He handed me something wet and muscular, covered with scales. I held it up in the moonlight. It was a monster's arm, severed clean through the bone at the elbow. Sons of bitches, I groaned, and everything went black.
Riddle was finished. He stood up and walked over to the window, his hands held behind his back. They no longer shook. Dean leaned forward and placed his empty Coke can on the coffee table. Gallup came over and placed an eagle cooler next to it. He glanced at Porter. Is that the reason you brought us here? Dean asked. Has it come back? Riddle stirred as if from deep thought. Yes, yes, it has come back. It's a little far-fetched, Porter said. Riddle nodded and turned around. Yes, it is. And if it hadn't happened to me, I'd agree. I'm a businessman. Most of the boogeymen I've met are lawyers, stockbrokers, and bankers. But it did happen to me. And I'm telling you that the monster is real. Very real. He crossed the floor and opened the cooler on the coffee table. Cold fog permeated the air, as if whatever was inside had been frozen for quite some time. Maybe this will prove it. Porter leaned forward, then Dean. Riddle took one step back and clasped his hands in front of him. Go ahead, he said. Take a look. It's no longer any harm to anyone now. The fog cleared, then Porter gasped. Dean exclaimed something short and vulgar. Riddle laughed out loud. You boys remind me of the look on Dan's face when he first saw it. May I? Porter asked. He positioned his hands over the cooler. By all means, Riddle said. Porter dipped his hands in and withdrew a portion of an arm, a very muscular arm. It was gray and withered with age, and scales ran its length from where it had been sliced off at the elbow to the top of the wrist. Two black digits grew out of the hand, connected by a thick rubbery membrane. Out of these sprouted black talons, curved, sharp, and brutal. It's the forearm of the beast that attacked me 69 years ago, Riddle said. It seems real, Dean said. He poked at the flesh with his forefinger. Ice cold. He grimaced and winced, but could not take his eyes off it. Porter turned the limb over and over in his hands. He inspected the end that had been severed, marveled at the jagged cut bone. Have you kept it frozen all these years? Not me. First Lee kept it. When he died five years ago, Mitch took it. Then last year, Mitch passed on and it was my turn. And we never showed it to anybody else. Until now. And now, as I'm the last living brother, it's my duty to kill the beast once and for all. Porter paused. He and Dean looked up at Riddle. You mean you didn't before? Dean asked. Riddle shrugged. We thought we might have, he said. Lee shot it and I cut off its arm, but we never saw the body. None of us ever said we'd kill it if it ever came back, but the responsibility was ours, hanging over that arm. And you want me to document it, Dean said. Yes. But I work for the Weekender section. I write about bluegrass music and Eagle Scouts. I'm sure you could have gotten somebody better. Riddle waved the question aside. You're young, Dean. Hungry for success? More importantly, you lived nearby and you were available. What more could I possibly ask? I can guess why you want me along, Porter said. Riddle smiled. Affirmation from a well-regarded marine biologist will not hurt my case. Gallup re-entered the room. He had a rifle slung over each shoulder and a long black duffel bag in one hand. He set the bag on the ground, unzipped it, and pulled out two forty fours. Take these, he said, handing one to Porter and one to Dean. Porter handled his weapon like a diseased organ. And these, Riddle said. He handed each man a key. It opens the doors to the pump house. If you should become separated or worse, if you turn out to be the lone survivor, you can take refuge here as long as it is necessary. I don't think that'll be a problem, Gallup said gruffly. Them there is 44s, Jason. You and me are armed to the teeth. Between the four of us, we'll blow a hole through just about anything. 
Gallup looked at Porter and Dean. You boys ever shot a gun before? No? Uh-uh. Gallup nodded. That's all right. It's just like taking a picture. Something comes at you, just point and shoot. He gathered up the bag and started for the stairs. Boys? Riddle asked. Dean and Porter exchanged a look. What makes you so sure we'll go? Porter asked. Riddle arched his eyebrows at them, then gave them an equally arched smile. Come on now, boys. Who could say no to this? The clanging of the steel-barred doors sounded like a death sentence to Dean. He took a deep breath and listened for the sounds of the night. Crickets, mainly, but every now and then the revving engine of a car ripped over the bridge, or an owl hooted. They crossed through the narrow path of thorn bushes to the trail that ran along the river, walking in single file. Gallop first, lugging the bag full of weapons, then Riddle, still spry even for his age, and Porter, his forty-four dangling carelessly from his right hand. Dean took up the rear. He'd shoved his gun into his belt. The river was flat here, and black, and it didn't seem to be at all low. He could make out the line on the far bank, Stafford's side. The black trees towered overhead. The thick brush ran right up to the water. He tripped over a root and cussed. A few hundred yards later, he stepped into a puddle and made a loud splash. Gallop stopped at least three times, head cocked, listening intently. They finally stopped on a little beach dug out of the bank. The outline of a huge rock sat in the middle of the river, about 25 yards out. Diving rock? Dean asked. The one and only, Riddle replied. Gallup set the bag down and dug around inside. Well, Porter said, what's the plan? Riddle looked at him as if the very idea were a novelty. I thought you knew. We're going to kill it. Porter scoffed a bit. I don't even know what I'm doing out here. Mr. Riddle, June 26th, 28th, 30th, July 3rd, 4th, 7th, August 9th, August 11th. Porter nodded, still mad. Okay, he said, so? Nine people, Cole. Nine people this summer so far. Three teenagers, a six-year-old, and five adults. All gone, all dead, all killed by that thing. Couldn't they have just drowned? I know a lot of people have gone missing out here this summer, but that doesn't necessarily mean, you're right, maybe they did drown. Maybe that thing got them. But we're out here to make sure that it doesn't kill again. His intensity softened, and he took a step closer to the professor. Thank you, it, Cole. Fine of the century. Porter shook his head. He said something under his breath. Well, you still in? Porter looked around at everyone, his eyes lingering longest on the old man. Fine. But I want a shot at it, whatever you think it is, if it is, first. And I get exclusive access to the carcass. Riddle held out his hands, palms up. Wouldn't have it any other way, Cole. Dan, you ready? Yup. He pulled something long out of the bag and handed it to the old man. Here. What's this? Little memento. He turned and clapped Porter on the back, and they waded quietly out into the river, both holding their weapons over their heads. Riddle gazed at the instrument with wonder. It was a machete. His father's machete. The same one he'd used to cut the arm off the river monster six decades before. Its blade flecked with rust, but it was still sharp, still whole. My God. Where'd he get this? He and Dan watched the other two men swim slowly out to the rock, gently correcting their courses when the current pulled them too far downriver. Porter made it first and scrambled up the side to stand dripping wet on the top. Gallup was less of a swimmer than the professor, and he was still about ten yards away. They could see his head bobbing in the current. No monsters out here, Porter cried. Dean had to admit that this was one of the strangest assignments he'd ever been on. That wasn't saying much. He was only in his twenties. He was an entertainment reporter in a small town in Virginia. Still, 
Five years ago, if someone had asked him what he'd be doing with his life after graduation, he would not have answered hunting river monsters on the Rappahannock. It was a beautiful summer night. The moon was full and bright, so bright that he could actually make out some of the details on Porter's face and clothes. The insects chirped and swelled, chirped and swelled. And then they stopped. My God, Riddle whispered. Cole! Porter turned around on the rock. He stood there for a moment, a black figure silhouetted against the sky. Then something exploded out of the water, and he was gone. A muffled shot and flash lit up the current. Riddle threw the machete into the sand at his feet and cocked his rifle. Get ready, Dean. For what? For anything. Gallup gained the rock. He turned and squatted, his body tense and alert. Suddenly, he stood up, shouldered his rifle, and fired into the water. Then he froze. In the woods! All around! Run! Dean squatted down and listened. The woods around him seemed alive all of a sudden. Large bodies flickered through the branches, and the sound of dozens of things crashing through the brush, and sticks and branches cracking dinned the air. He backed away downriver, his gun held out in front of him in a hand that did not feel like his own. His eyes were wide, his ears open, but all he could see was Riddle standing on the beach, peering into the darkness. All he could hear was the thunderous crackling of the brush, as if being trampled by hundreds of feet. Riddle picked the machete up and tossed it toward the boy. Dean slowly knelt down and picked it up. No, Riddle muttered, suddenly panicked. It must have... how could it... His eyes were wide and jittery as he surveyed the bush. Then... Just as sudden, the panic was wiped away and replaced by a cool calm. The old man nodded. Okay. Get back to the pump house, Dean. His face was pale and white in the light of the moon. We'll meet you there. Gallup fired a few shots into the bushes upstream. Each one was met with squeals of pain and angry and human roars. Fire into the bush, he cried. The water exploded behind him and a dark form swept him off the rock. They tumbled in the air, spinning, spinning, and hit the water with a smack. A spray of droplets twinkled in the light. Gallup resurfaced once, wrestling with something large and slick and muscular. His hunting knife flashed in the moonlight as he brought it down again and again. Then he rolled back into the water. Two black forms shot out of the brush, aiming for Riddle, who fired, twisted, fired, and the thing squealed and collapsed on either side of him, black blood spilling into the sand. Run! Riddle yelled over his shoulder. Dean spun on his heel and sprinted away. Branches whipped his face, his arms. He parted tangles of spiderweb, tripped over roots. More shots rang out behind him, and he heard the old man cry out. And then it was silent. No crashing, no cracking, no insects. Just the inexorable rush of the river. He stopped. The blood rushed in his ears. He raised the forty-four in his shaky fist. Suddenly... Just as suddenly as they stopped, the insects swelled again. Dean never thought he'd be so relieved to hear their music. He relaxed a little, let his arms drop to his sides. Mr. Riddle, he called. Mr. Gallup? The insects stopped again, and a huge dark form burst out of the water to his right, and Dean's senses were overwhelmed with the stench of rotting fish. The figure leaned back and loosed a horrid, bubbly roar. It lashed out and knocked the gun out of his hand. Dean turned to flee, but the beast squatted down and launched itself at him. It struck his back, and then he was airborne. He landed on his face, sand and rocks grinding into his skin, cutting his lips, and tumbled into the brush, ending the fall on his back, his left arm held up in front of his face. A searing pain ripped across his chest and belly, wetness splattered across his torso. The creature's talons struck his left arm. It snapped. The boy screamed in agony. He sucked in a deep breath, wondering if this was it. If this was the way he was going to die, slashed to pieces on the banks of some foreign southern river, dragged into the bland churl of the Rappahannock and stuffed under a rock to rot when he realized that he still had the machete in his right hand. 
Time seemed to slow down. The boy's left arm was a searing brand of pain. His chest was on fire. Above him, the beast reared, straddling his body, its claws flailing madly in the midnight blue sky, its face turned toward the full moon, loosing another roar. Its claws started to descend, aiming straight for his head, and Dean saw the air part as they did so, saw the water wick off the monster's rubber skin, saw the leaves of the scrub shake with the force. He closed his eyes. Then, with all of his remaining strength, he swept the machete off the ground, aiming for the monster above him, hoping to cut it somewhere, anywhere, before those razor-sharp talons severed his head from his body, ripped his throat from his neck. The young reporter did not have a violent bone in him. The last time he'd been in the kind of fight that required the use of force was elementary school. The last time he'd thrown a punch was in a free Aikido class six years before. But he wasn't a coward. He wasn't weak. And he would not go out like this. He would at least try to fight back. The blade connected. He felt the shock run up his arm. More pain, this time not from a cut, but from his muscles. They screamed in agony as he followed through. The monster's roar, so thick and full and horrible, milliseconds before, suddenly cut off. Something thumped in the sand next to Dean's head. More wetness splattered in his face. His arm completed its arc, and the machete thunked into the sand at his side. He waited. Waited for the end. Would he feel anything? Would it toy with him? Would it eat him alive? What was it waiting for? After a few seconds, he realized that he was still alive. Nothing tore into his flesh. His head was still attached to his body, his throat still in his neck. He opened his eyes. The torso of the beast still straddled him, arms hanging limply by its sides. The head was gone. He'd cut it off. The wetness he'd felt was its blood. The thump, its head. He moaned and shoved the body off. It collapsed into the brush. Standing was shaky. He'd lost blood. His left arm and chest were slashed to ribbons, and his right shoulder dislocated. Riddle! He cried, not caring anymore. Gallop! Nobody answered. No more shots rang out. The insects continued their mute vigil. Then he heard something crash in the bushes behind him, and he ran again. How long did it take to make it back to the pump house? Twenty minutes? An hour? Dean couldn't be sure. All he knew was that he was exhausted, and every step was agony, and every step made him dizzier and weaker and sicker. He had to stop twice, had fallen to his knees, breathing in ragged strips like an emphysemic, and twice he thought he heard something behind him, crashing through the bushes. He turned and thrashed the machete wildly, desperately, but nothing was there. He collapsed against the door when he reached it, sank to the concrete stoop, suppressing a shudder, suppressing a gag. It was a long time before he was able to breathe without thinking he'd vomit. Then finally his lungs relaxed. Oxygen flowed easily, and though it hurt his ribs to expand, he took long, deep breaths, two, three times, until his vision cleared and his body settled. It was amazing how everything and nothing had changed. The moon was still full, still showered the woods with its icy cold glow. The air, thick with August humidity, cocooned him in heat. The crickets chirped and sang, and then they stopped. Desperate 
Hey, hey, thank you for tuning in to the Mad Tales podcast. I hope you enjoyed this week's chapter. If you cannot wait until next week to finish the story, you can always buy it in ebook and paperback form from Amazon.com, or you can buy it directly from me, both in ebook and in paperback, a signed paperback nonetheless, uh, from my website, www.jamesnoll.net. That's www.jamesnoll.net. And if you would love to support me on Patreon, I would love you to support me on Patreon. I'm offering all kinds of cool extras, including access to bonus material, uh, the ebooks released one week at a time, the chapter at a time, uh, customized short stories. And if I can build enough of a following, I want to film a live action version of Make the Hive Great Again, one of my favorite chapters from The Hive. It's uh, at the end of the first season. It's the very last chapter of the, of the first season. That would be an awesome thing to do. So if you want to visit my Patreon page, it's www.patreon.com slash madtails. That would be fantastic. And I will see you guys next week.